Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I want to report that I made a quick trip to Washington, D.C. this week. I'm happy to say it did not involve grand jury indictments or appearing before a magistrate. Instead, it was to see our co-host, Ben Baldanza, receive the Joseph S. Murphy Service to Industry Award given by Air Transport World. It's awarded only rarely at the editor's discretion to those who have long served the air transport industry with distinction and passion, and I can't think of any more worthy recipient than Ben. It was an honor to be with you, Ben, as you received the trophy. Congratulations again, my friend. Well, thank you so much, Scott, and thank you for making the trip up to be there at this important event for me. It was a wonderful event hosted by Baker McKenzie, a law firm in D.C. who have a room, as I think you'll agree, Scott, yes. as an absolutely spectacular view of D.C. It seems you can almost touch the White House and you see the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the river. It's fantastic. Yeah, it was, was. Made for some great pictures, too. And and the, the, the event was in a uh, beautiful room, but right outside the room was a, a balcony just over, right on top of the White House. It was spectacular. Absolutely. And it was a great group of people and a really fun event. But we have some important news to talk about this week, Scott. And our guest this week is someone who I think also served the industry with distinction and passion. Susan Carey, your former colleague at the Wall Street Journal, kept us all well informed for several decades. I think it will be very interesting to hear her perspective both on aviation history since deregulation and also her take on current events. Ben, few people know all the different aspects of the airline industry as well as Susan. We had a lot of great moments covering airlines together, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of that with listeners. But first, the news. Last week, JetBlue retired its very first jet that it put in service, an A320 named Bluebird that flew for 23 years. Retiring its first plane is a reminder, I think, that JetBlue is still a relatively young airline. I think we sometimes forget that. And like many young companies, and young people 23 years old, JetBlue is still trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. 
The airline cut its expected 2023 earnings to a range of just $0.05 cents a share to $0.40 cents a share. JetBlue's previous forecast was a range of $0.70 cents a share to $1 a share. Roughly 30 to 40% of the drop comes from unwinding the Northeast Alliance with American. JetBlue was getting a lot of additional revenue from American customers booking on JetBlue. As you know too well, being a member of JetBlue's board of directors, a federal judge found the partnership anti-competitive and ordered an airline divorce, a very expensive divorce for JetBlue. Another 30% to 40% of the earnings haircut comes from weather disruptions and air traffic control challenges in the Northeast this summer. That's had a huge impact on New York-based JetBlue, and honestly, I find it appalling when the Secretary of Transportation and members of Congress attack airlines for travel problems without acknowledging the government's own ineptness. FAA problems in New York are having a big financial impact on airlines and on travelers. Finally, the remaining difference came from travel demand shifts to long-haul international at the expense of domestic travel this summer. That hurts JetBlue since its network is very domestic-focused. We started talking about this pattern last week when other airlines like Southwest and Frontier had comparatively weaker results than Delta, United, and American, which benefit from strong post-COVID demand for long-haul international this summer. JetBlue wasn't the only one. Its proposed merger partner, Spirit, missed earnings and revenue expectations for the second quarter, and CEO Ted Christie said pricing was softer than expected at his airline, just like other smaller carriers. Fair revenue per flight fell 20% at Spirit compared to last summer, when demand for domestic trips was crazy strong. It was a big drop from about $72 per passenger per flight segment to only $58 per passenger. I'm reminded of an old lesson about the airline business I always had a hard time convincing editors about. Just because airports are crowded, you can't assume airlines are printing money. Spirit's unit revenue was up 13% compared to a year ago, but capacity was up 17%. Yes, there were more people at airports, but load factor was actually down, and the price those people in long lines paid was a lot less than a year ago. Sometimes less is more. Spirit shares fell more than 11% last week. JetBlue shares fared even worse, down more than 15% in five days. Ouch. Back to the what do you want to be when you grow up question. I think this summer really highlights the need for the JetBlue Spirit merger. I'm not sure the government is paying attention, but the case for the merger now that the American deal is unwound has gotten a lot stronger and perhaps more urgent. JetBlue in particular needs to diversify its network beyond New York. Yes, it's big in Boston, and yes, it has grown a lot in Fort Lauderdale, but JetBlue is very much a New York airline, and if New York is in trouble, as it is, then JetBlue is in trouble. Airlines are being forced to shrink in New York because of the government's problems. The FAA problems are seriously costing airlines money, lots of money. Both JetBlue and Spirit are finding it increasingly difficult to compete against the big four now that travel is returning to more normalcy. And to me, that's the point. 
to compete against such dominance in the airline business, you have to be bigger yourself. Just looking at domestic travel, American Southwest, Delta, and United have about 70% of the market, not counting their regional partners. JetBlue and Spirit, 5% each. JetBlue may not need Bluebird anymore, but it sure needs Big Bird. A tough week, Ben. Are you worried about domestic demand for the rest of the year? Well, thanks, Scott. That's a great overview. You know, this fall looks to be more normal in the sense of the way traffic has historically dropped from summer to fall. But last year, we all benefited from a much stronger fall. Some of that was because fares were so high last summer, some people held their travel to the fall. The other thing interesting is how the world has changed, where the low-cost carriers used to be much better financial performers than the big guys. Now the big guys are making all the money and the small ones are having more trouble. And like you said, it comes from scale. So it's going to be really interesting to see how both the government and the industry respond to a fall which may be normal compared to 2019, but not as strong as last year. One interesting note on the labor front, Scott, the National Mediation Board denied a request from the Southwest Airline Pilots Association to be released from mediated contract talks. This would have triggered a 30-day cooling-off period and possibly a strike. The NMB instead said the sides need to keep talking. Maybe the NMB felt they were closer than the Southwest pilots thought. With pilot deals settled at Delta, United, and American, I would expect they should be able to get a deal soon. It's clear what the market pay rates are for 737 pilots and by extension, A320 pilots. There are always a lot of other issues in a contract, but it's also clear that the administration, even a union-friendly one, is not going to allow a major airline strike. The Southwest pilots will get paid, and they deserve it, Scott. Totally agree, Ben. And it's interesting that the two issues you mentioned, I I think, are really related. It, It is fascinating how the big airlines are able to make money well and able to make money while accruing for higher pilot rates. The low cost airlines haven't been as profitable. And I think the the higher pilot rates will eventually get down to them. And that's going to make it even tougher 
for them to be able to make money uh, flying people on low fares. Well, Airlines Confidential is sponsored by Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. We also want to thank Dewhop, D-O-H-O-P, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dewhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lowering their costs, all while maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Dewhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dewhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P dot com. Now let's welcome Susan Carey to the show. Susan Carey had a long and decorated career at the Wall Street Journal covering the airline industry. Susan was the consummate reporter, incredibly well-sourced, always accurate, always fair. She could analyze the airline landscape better than most analysts, better than most CEOs. She could tell a story like no other. She was, as you can tell, a treasured colleague. Susan and I pushed each other to do better. We commiserated and collaborated. And the work we each are most proud of in our careers, we did together. Susan, it's a delight to have you share your insights and memories with us on Airlines Confidential. Well, what a wonderful welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's start with how you came to the airline industry. As I recall, you started covering airlines when you were overseas for the journal. I remember stories about you climbing <laughs> climbing into a, a fuel tank and a wing and other things like that. Well, I joined the journal in 1981, and I was covering coal mining in Pittsburgh, of all things. And I got a call from Brussels about a new beat they were creating, covering airlines, travel, and civil aerospace. And I said, sign me up. So by 85, I had 200 airlines to tend to, along with Airbus. Mm. There was a very big learning curve. Mm. What a great time to come into the industry, too. That's exactly when I joined, and especially for Airbus, which was just starting to enter the U.S. market. Yes, it was a little baby company then. It, it was run on a corporate governance thing that had to do with grape growers in collectives in France, and they literally ran 
using the same corporate guidance as grape growers <laughs> at that point in time. <laughs> That's great. Well, Susan, what were the challenges of reporting on this crazy industry? Why is there such fascination with this business? Well, it is a 24-7 beat which is good and bad, especially if you work for a newspaper that has a wire service. Um, but readers are deeply interested in this business. They travel a lot. They think if the tray table is broken, the engine might fall off. For a reporter, it's an amazing mix of technology, labor, competition, marketing, overseas diplomacy, you know, exotic destinations, and colorful CEOs. So you have it all in one beat. So with those colorful CEOs, who were some of the personalities you found most interesting to cover? Um, what, what made them fun to write about? Well, when I was in Europe, I was a big fan of Colin Marshall, who took a ratty, newly privatized British Airways and made it great. He was so elegant, and he had a, a knowledge of customer service he learned in the cruise industry. So he stands out. Tony Ryan, the wild and crazy Irishman who founded the airplane lessor GPA, was also a standout. He practically invented a brand new industry that put airplanes into airlines that couldn't have afforded them previously. In the U.S., after lots of tears and water under the bridge, I became a fan of Richard Anderson. We clashed a lot at Northwest, but we both grew up and we grew to know each other, and I watched him do really amazing things at Delta. And I'm also a huge fan of David Nealeman, who is so creative and, you know, he's not a long-term manager, but boy, is he a good starter of an airline. Susan, do you remember the, what was it, eight-hour knockdown, drag-out uh, confrontation interview we had with Richard oh. Anderson over JTAD <laughs> engines when he was running operations at Northwest? Oh, <laughs> do I remember? Uh, what do you remember about it? It, it was a, a test of wills of, of bladder capacity. No one wanted to give in to be the first to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, it was, it was the two of us versus eight executives yeah. <laughs> in this dark room in a hangar. Uh-huh. And we had them by the short hairs. <laughs> they decided that they were going to expand and extend the age, the use of their DC-9 fleet for another 10 or 15 years. These planes were already ancient. So they did a overhauls. They did little quick MROs on this fleet, and all sorts of bad things happened. And we knew it, and they, they didn't want to... They didn't want to hear it. It was tough. It really was. That was the brainchild of Mike Levine. In fact, he tried to convince then manufacturers to produce a $15 million new airplane 
that didn't have any technology. He just wanted a new DC-9 that could fly mini Fargo. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and when I first met Richard Susan, he had joined Northwest about the same time I did. And we were having lunch one day in the Northwest cafeteria. I had come from Texas, having worked for American, and he had been at Continental. And he looked at me while we were at lunch and said, do you know, Ben, that you can't drive with an open container of beer in this state? (laughs) (laughs) That was so funny. (laughs) Years later, he's running ops, then running Delta. And I thought, wow, what a growth. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Susan, when you were writing, did you approach airline coverage as a company reporter or a consumer reporter? Who did you see as your audience? Well, I let Scott talk to the consumers. I talked to the corporate readers and, by extension, the union leadership and the hedge funds and those people. I made every effort to hear from consumers, and believe me, when they were mad, which was often, it was hard not to hear them. And I also made an effort to include employees in my coverage because they could make things run amazingly or be living hell. But no, I thought of myself as a corporate reporter. It was a really good division of duty for a long time there. You and I have talked many times about this over the years. 9-11 was the most difficult and impactful story we covered. And the story we did together about the United and American Operation Centers, about what they went through that day, remains the story that we are each most proud of in our careers. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think the coverage spoke to a nation or really a world that was just seared by the terror. And that early story did pull back the curtain to readers in a way that no one else had. But that was just the entree. The stories continued. People were afraid to fly. Pilots were giving passengers pep talks about how they were going to take down the terrorists in the aisle. And the whole industry then went broke. And then we had the drama of the bankruptcies and then the drama of the mergers that, and those dramas went on for years. And this was all because of one thing that happened one day. Well, beyond the 9-11 story, what were some of your favorite stories to cover? And I know you had all kinds of experience with airlines around the world. What were some of your favorite experiences, Susan? Well, I I liked the frozen tundra Northwest debacle story, my magnum opus about the 50 planes <laughs> in the blizzard on the runway in Detroit in 99. And that was a good one. And it took people inside the plane, one plane, which was its beauty and... I mean, Warner Brothers optioned that story to be a movie, which would have been a good one, except then 9-11 happened. So 
that was that was not gonna be timely. I liked doing features. I liked giving readers little catnip bites of things that they wouldn't know about ordinarily. I interviewed Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, who is hilarious, when he was an actor for a NetJet piece, because he was a very fervent NetJet fan. Let's see, I interviewed potty mouth Larry Bird, the coach, for a story about how pro athletes travel. And he was so indignant that when he was traveling as a player, they had to fly commercial and carry their own luggage. And now these lazy basketball players he coached got to ride in a beautiful refurbished plane, you know, with massage tables and, you know, everything. That was that was a fun one. I mean, just stuff that readers could not know about otherwise that was you know, really fun. I wrote about 1930s navigation beacons that still guide pilots in Wyoming, you know, a holdover from the old days of beacons from coast to coast. And just there's, there's a, there was a million things to write about. I never even had time to get to all of them. So true. Are you surprised at all by the changes we see in the airline business post-pandemic? Travel seems to be a much higher priority in people's lives. Demand has been really strong, even though business travel hasn't fully recovered. Labor costs are really jumping after years of little increase. History often repeats itself in this business. Do you think it's still cyclical boom to bust? I unfortunately do think it's still cyclical and will always be. The economics of this industry are just lacking in a very long-term way. In my book, labor costs are up. They always go up uh, until there's a bankruptcy. And airline IT systems are surprisingly fragile and not just Southwest. And the need for investment in this industry is just enormous all the time. So no, I'm, I'm glad that flyers want to travel and I want to travel, but I don't have a long-term sanguine view of this industry's health. Hmm. You know, Susan, I hate to agree with you on this, but I do. <laughs> you know, I'm validated. I'm validated. <laughs> well, as you know, consolidation has played a big role in this industry, often as a solution when things get really bad. Do you think the industry needs any more? You know, I'm of mixed minds about consolidation. In Europe, when I was there in the 80s and 90s, it needed to happen because when you think about it, you had multiple small or medium countries in dense proximity, all with their own airline. And that was just incredibly wasteful. But... You know, so the EU deregulated, and then ultimately the rise of the pan-European low-cost guys like Ryanair and EasyJet and Wiz sort of changed everything around. In Asia, deregulation led to some new competition, although much more grudging. And, you know, there were second airlines started in Korea and Taiwan, for instance, and China gave more weight to its second and third airlines as being also flag carriers. But 
Korean just bought back Asiana, the new airline in that country, showing how really little appetite really exists for competition. But the AirAsias and the Indigos of the region have been able to accommodate the new travel demand quite well. So if your neighbor said, I'm going to go work for an airline, what (laughs) advice would you offer? (laughs) Looking back on all you learned, any advice for airline CEOs or or for aviation reporters? (laughs) Well, if it were my neighbor, I'd say, don't do it. (laughs) But if it were a CEO or someone who was going to be a CEO, you know, I'd probably give the same advice you guys would give. You know, your employees are a resource. Listen to them. Uh, Don't be an industry lemming in an industry full of them. Mm. Don't nickel and dime your passengers so much, or at least so obviously. And really, take the long view. Yeah, yeah. And how about for aviation reporters? (laughs) (laughs) There are so few left. Yeah. I mean, remember when there were every hub city and or every city pretty much had a local paper who had a local reporter who covered the airline business. Yeah. And it was so easy to read their stories and pluck ideas. (laughs) And now there really aren't that many people doing it anymore. Um, so I don't know what I would tell an airline reporter. I'd say, I don't know. I'd say you better really be good at social media. Yeah. And podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, what do you, I mean, what would you, as coming from your vantage point, what would be your advice to a CEO? Well, to a CEO, I would say what you said about taking the long view Not let short-term problems overwhelm the long-term. Own the mistakes and move on from them. I think that's a big deal. Mm. And understand that your employees are your resource. Gordon Bethune said something on our show, Susan, that you should never lie to your lawyer your doctor, or your employees. And I think that's terrific advice. Indeed. Yeah, and I, uh, listen, if if my neighbor asks, I I would say go for it. I think the industry is a ton of fun. Um, I think there will, there will always be airlines. Uh, you know, our, our friend, Wall Street analyst, Sam Buttrick, in one one crisis once said to me, there will always be airlines. They'll just have different names on the airplanes. And 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 I I remember that all the time because there will always be airlines. Um, you know, they they do come and go, but people are always going to want to travel. And and from that sense, I think it's a it's a very it's an industry with a very bright future. Well, it certainly was a bright industry for all of us. It was and still is. Susan, it's been great having you with us. We really appreciate it. And, uh, and we look forward to, to staying in touch and, uh, and hearing more from you. My pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Susan, and for all you've done for this industry, too. 
All right. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Well, thanks again to Susan for sharing some important airline history and her always insightful perspective. Scott, in this week's mailbag, a question that is near and dear to my heart. Peter from New York City asks, why do airlines now default to charging for checked bags but allow some level of free cabin bags? Shouldn't it be the other way around as a default? Free check bags and fees for anything in the overhead bin, unless you are a frequent flyer or co-branded credit holder, etc. Today's incentives seem perverse, causing longer passenger loading and unloading times at the gates. What do you think, Scott? Well, I think logically, Peter, uh, makes sense. And, and I know when you were at Spirit and you started charging for carry-on bags, I remember you saying you shaved nearly five minutes off of each departure because you weren't checking bags at the gate and, and it was just faster boarding. That allowed you to add flights to the schedule, a big number of flights. I, I think it was something like uh, so many flights you would have had to have 12 additional airplanes. And that's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of airplanes. So... It does make financial sense, logical sense, but it's not our custom. It's not our tradition in air travel. Um, it's it's just not the norm, and I think it's a it's a huge shock to people uh, to think that they couldn't for free carry something. They're they're doing the labor. They're carrying it on board, and people need to take clothes with them when they travel, or papers with them, or whatever it is that they have in their bags. So I, I think it may be logical, but not practical. And what do you think, Ben? <laughs> I think you're right, Scott. You know, the low fare carriers have a more urgent need on this because they put more seats on the planes, mm-hmm. but they can't expand the overhead bins. So when you charge for check bags and not carry on bags, you create a situation where you just can't fit all the bags on board. Yeah. Before Spirit put in the carry-on fee, we were gate-checking seven to eight bags per flight, and that really delayed the flight. The carry-on bag fee was all about improving operational efficiency not really creating more revenue. So Spirit's model of charging for both seems to work for an American United or Delta. In addition to what you said, I don't think they would give up the millions they make on check bag fees. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and enforcement, I think, on American Delta United or, or, or Southwest um, would be a lot more difficult because you are going to provide 
exemptions for your elite level frequent flyers and and other people. Um, the, the nine or ten different boarding groups at American is already enough chaos. Uh, trying to get on the airplane, um, trying to segregate free carry-on bags from paid carry-on bag people um, would just be more of a nightmare. Well, that's the kind of simple complication yeah. that raises enormous costs and training and consistency issues at airlines. Uh-huh. I love that phrase, simple complexity, and, and that sort of uh, encapsulates the entire airline industry, doesn't it? Well, I thought you'd like that question from Peter. And Peter from New York City has a second question this week, uh, which was near and dear to my heart. He asks, why do I often get to a gate and see departure time that's already in the past? Or I get an airline cancellation notification in the airline's app before the local station staff communicates that. It makes me think airline corporate offices think their customers and employees are dopes and not worthy of basic respect. I used to write about this problem somewhat frequently. It used to be a lot worse when third-party flight trackers first started showing up and apps on your phone were way ahead of airline systems. Airlines have gotten a lot better, but as Peter notes, there are still lots of problems. The explanation I always got from airlines is that the passenger and flight system used at airports just isn't as good or as fast as other systems, including airlines' own apps now. So passengers often do end up with more timely information than gate agents. Gate agents also have lots of duties and may be focused on other things when a change gets made, so they are not as up to date. Airlines have gotten better about providing timely and detailed information to passengers about delays. That's a good thing. And upgrading passenger processing systems is a huge and expensive undertaking, and often airlines are using third-party vendors like Sabre. Sometimes gate agents are contract employees who handle multiple airlines so they aren't as familiar with each airline's procedures and rules and aren't as plugged in to timely updates. Remember, a change in Chicago in airport processes has to work in Tokyo and Quito and everywhere else as well. Other thoughts on this problem, Ben? I think you pretty much nailed it. But for years now, Scott, I've learned to just self-serve here. I have a simple app on my phone called Flight View. There are probably 50 others. And I just have learned when I'm at the airport, I go to my phone, I check that app. It tells me what my gate is. It tells me what the plane is. It tells me where the plane is coming from. So I can check that flight and see when it's arriving. And I've just learned to self-serve, and it makes so much sense. I will say something else, Scott. Last week, I had a doctor's appointment, and I checked in at about 11.50 for a noon appointment. While I was sitting waiting to be called at 12.10, I got a text from the doctor's office saying, 
Remember to check in for your noon appointment today <laughs> at 10 after 12. And I was already checked in. <laughs> so my point is, it's not just airlines that have these problems. <laughs> yeah, airlines should fix them first. Yes, doctor, heal thyself. <laughs> All right, one more question this week. This one from Trina from Denver. Scott and Ben, I really enjoy your podcast and have a question for Professor Ben. This is a bit of an economics question about how to help reduce the pilot shortage. It is also a little pie-in-the-sky thinking. If the major airlines executives gave up some of their compensation, they could offer financial assistance to pilots to get their required hours. My question, would this idea make sense? How much is the pilot shortage hurting airlines' bottom line versus the cost to fund training hours for the pilots? Wouldn't these actions pay for themselves in the medium term? I'm fuzzy on airline tax laws, but it seems reasonable that a portion of the cost would be tax deductible. Lastly, a comment on your recent quiz for Scott. I would also choose the airline's operational role and would add one other element to Scott's answer. That is the opportunity to really understand in real time the customer experience. This boots-on-the-ground perspective would be valuable feedback to executive management. Thank you. Thank you, Trina. What do you think, Ben? Should airlines be offering financial assistance to student pilots, whether it comes from executive compensation or not? Thank you very much, Trina. This is a very innovative idea. I do think that airlines should be part of the solution for making it easier for people to become pilots. And in making it easier, I also continue to think that we need a much wider net. We need women and generally unrepresented groups in the pilot world believing when their kids and when they're graduating from high school, that they can be pilots too. And the issue I have with your idea is it's just not that much money. I know executives get paid a lot individually, but there's just not that many of them. So if they got paid nothing and you gave all their salary to pilot trainers, you'd still only be able to train a few pilots. So I think the airlines helping is really important. I just don't think the source for most of that is going to come from executives, even though I really like that general idea. Yeah, I think it's actually a great idea that airlines help student pilots financially. Um, I think student pilots would like to be uh, tied into an airline system. Um, and I think uh, airlines, uh, no, nobody else is, is really stepping up to help. And airlines need this labor. I'm kind of reminded my older daughter had a Truman scholarship um, that paid for her graduate school education, uh, but it required public service after she graduated. Uh, she had to commit to 
um, working in public service for uh, a number of years uh, as part of the of the scholarship. And you could see that happening with airlines, where you essentially work off the student loans through your first five or 10 years committed to, to an airline, um, where each year you're successfully flying for the airline, more of the loan might be forgiven. I think there, there could be lots of creative solutions here. But Trina's point is, and I think it's right, there needs to be creative solutions. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.